0: Go ahead. Okay. So our passage is Mark 10:35 through 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, teacher, what do you want to do for us? Wait, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want for me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one of your right hand and one of your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must also be your servant. And whoever, whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many."
1: Thank you, Kyler. So if you're a little person and your parents are okay with it, Ms. Rachel and Miss Cammy will take you guys to class in the back corner so you all are dismissed. And if you're a bigger person, you can stay in here with me and it's gonna be fun. Um, so you guys can just bear with me today. I've been fighting the start of a sinus infection all week. I've been taking pills like it's candy. i um, trying to fight that off. So I've still got some residual stuff going on with that. But hopefully we'll, uh, we'll make it through today and I'll be nice and clear and loud and that sort of thing. Um, it's probably good that I lost the front row from last week. That's, that's for their benefit. All right, so good morning everybody. So today we are continuing on with our series around the table. So if you've missed this or if you're like, I still don't know what you're talking about, dude, uh, we have taken the table from our logo and we're essentially using it as a tool or a pathway for discipleship. So we think we can utilize it as a way to help us understand, even though discipleship is more comprehensive than this, we see there's four basic components that we would walk somebody that's newer in the faith through, um, or even somebody that's more of a veteran in their faith. So we started out with worship. We had three weeks where we preached and discussed about the topic of worship, both within this space and within our day-to-day lives, um, and just how worship is comprehensive from our words that we sing and speak and our finances and our gifts and abilities and those sort of things. And so if you are a Christ follower, you must engage in worship. You have no other choice but to do so because of what Christ has done. And then the second leg of our table was community. So we just spent the last three weeks talking about community and what that looks like, both within the corporate gathering within church and what it means to be devoted to a local church body and to pray together, to have communion together, and to be devoted to the preaching of God's Word together. And then last week I spoke on what it looked like within the day-to-day life, how discipleship begins to look and how the church begins to look in smaller pockets of believers, and that community is another form of that discipleship. And so. First, you must, of course, engage in worship, and then you should be devoted to a local body of believers. And then now we're starting service. So we're going to spend three weeks talking about what gospel-centered service looks like. As Jerry mentioned, the last three weeks will be gospel-centered multiplication, and that'll take us all the way up until Advent. So it's a fun, long series, but we're, we're enjoying it. So... Um today we're just beginning to look at what does service, gospel centered service looks like. And so this is just kind of an overview of service. It's nothing too specific. Um in fact I was making fun of Jerry in our meeting in the in the back this morning, our prayer meeting, and say, I'm gonna pull a Jerry today and give you lots of scripture. And so I'm both sorry that we're going to bounce around a lot, but I'm also not sorry because it's God's Word, and what else should we spend our time in? So we're going to be in a lot of Scripture today, and it's going to be great. But before we get there, I want to give you the definition of what we describe as gospel-centered service. It is in your worship guide. You have an insert um, for, for sermon notes, so it's already there for you, and there are places for you to fill things in if you like to do that to help you pay attention. Just know that point number three, there's a, a, a miss type in there, and that's my fault. I'm only an English teacher on weekdays, not on the weekends. Um, Anyway, so this is the table. We'll come back to that later. But we say that gospel-centered service, and this is in those sermon notes, gospel-centered service is knowing that Jesus Christ did not come to be served, but to serve, gospel-centered service overflows out of each of us by understanding God's unique work in giving all believers spiritual gifts in order for us to bless our communities and serve the body of Christ. That's a pretty big definition, right? I challenge you to take some time to kind of break that down and figure out what that means, but we will walk through it a little bit over the next three weeks, um, and it's really a great picture of what gospel-centered service is. Um, But today, we're just kind of giving a brief overview of what a theology of service entails, and the next couple weeks, we'll go a little bit more in depth of what that looks like. Um, So today, as you've already seen, we are in the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 10. So either in your worship guide or in your Bibles, just know I'm going to jump around all over the place. So you may want to flip with me or you may want to just take notes on where we go and look back later on. But today we're in the Gospel of Mark. Um, And so the Gospel of Mark, of course, is one of the four Gospels. It's believed to be the earliest Gospel that was written. Um, It also um, comes from John Mark, who essentially took Peter's experiences with God and put them into this gospel, and that's where we get the gospel of Mark from. So why don't we look back at the beginning of today's passage, just to kind of give ourselves a little bit of context of what's going on, and then we're going to zoom out a little bit and look at other passages surrounding this one to really understand, well, what is happening, and why do they say the things that they do in this passage, and that'll help us to get into what service looks like. So beginning in verse 35, let's read again. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And of course, he says to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they say to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Man, this is something like really audacious, right? Like, do they know what they're asking of Jesus? We kind of chuckled about this in our sermon prep last week um, as well. But this is pretty crazy. And I imagine there's nobody in here that would ever ask something of Jesus that they don't really understand something that's really, really huge, right? Nobody's ever done that, I'm sure, but we'll come back to that later. But regardless, it's really important for us to understand what's going on in their world and in the context of their lives for us to really figure out, like, how in the world can they say to Jesus, do whatever we want, right? Because it sounds crazy to us, but I think if you put yourself in their shoes, you begin to understand. So to many Jewish people during this particular time, when they are hoping for the Messiah, what they're hoping for essentially is a warrior king who will show up and rescue them from the terrible Romans and who will establish their earthly kingdom once again as a free nation and allow them to be you know, ruled by their own Jewish king. So whenever you look at the disciples or you look at James and John, they're still kind of coming out of this context where they're thinking like, okay, Jesus is the Messiah. Here's what it means. It means we're going to get rid of the Romans. Jesus is going to be our earthly king and we get to be right there with him, right? We get to be these people that are important and people in power. But before we really get into that too much more, I want us to back up, because this is actually the third time that this happens, believe it or not. They are that hard-headed as the third time that this conversation has come up. So he's already told them two times prior that the Son of Man, who is Jesus, must die and rise again. So let's look back at these other passages. Again, you can either flip there with me, or you can um, just kind of mark down where they are. I may have put them in here. Yeah, there they are. Well, maybe. This thing sometimes works and sometimes doesn't work. There it is. So that's where we're going if you want to write those down. So looking back at Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 35. This is right after Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ. It says, And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. So what just happened? It says Jesus very plainly said, the son of man must die and rise again. And they didn't get it, right? Peter's like, no, that's not going to happen because he's setting his mind on the things of man. And that being, he's setting his mind on the fact that Jesus is this warrior king that's going to rescue them from the Romans. There's no way you're going to die. You're our hope to get us out of this situation. But he's setting his mind on the things of man, not on things of God. And he is completely missing the point. So Jesus rebukes him in front of everyone. But even more important than that, Jesus teaches that in order to follow him, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, just like he did, and follow him. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And this is going to become increasingly important as we go on. Then we look at chapter 9 as we continue on, and you have the Transfiguration. So this is the time where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, those last two names should be familiar from today's passage. So he takes the three of them with him um, up on the mountain, and this is where the transfiguration takes place. So Jesus is literally transformed before them. He is so completely white that is whiter than anything they've ever seen in the world. And then all of a sudden there's Moses and there's Elijah there walking with Jesus and talking with him. And so naturally in that moment, they don't know what to do, right? They're scared out of their minds, and Peter, he just says something, because he doesn't know what else to do. Um, But anyway, so Jesus takes them and lets them see and experience this. And then shortly after this, they're continuing on towards Galilee. And it says, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they, the disciples, did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and he was in the house. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who of them was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So once again, time number two. Jesus tells them that he is going to be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he will be killed, and he will rise again, and it must happen. But they didn't get it. They didn't understand what this meant. They were afraid to ask him because they didn't want to put their foot in their mouth again, so they kept silence. But on the way, they're like arguing with each other, like, no, I'm great. No, I'm greater, right? That's the discussion that they're having. Because again, they're still thinking he's going to have this earthly kingdom, and I'm going to be number two. I'm going to be number three, right? That's what they're discussing. That's what they're thinking. And so they still don't get it. They completely miss the point. They're focusing on this idea of an earthly kingdom, and Jesus is reminding them again, if you want to be first, if you want to be the greatest in my kingdom, you need to be servant of all. You need to be last. So then we get to chapter 10. Mark tells the story of this rich young man who inquires of Jesus what he must do to be saved. And because he tells Jesus like, look, I've I've already kept all the commandments, which of course isn't true. But in his own world, he thinks that he's been perfect, kept all the commandments. And Jesus lovingly goes right straight for his heart and says, well, you need to sell all of your possessions and give it to the poor and follow me. And so he walks away sad and downcast because he has all these riches and he wasn't willing to give it over to God and to follow Jesus. And so after this, Peter points out that he and the other disciples have done exactly this. They have forsaken everything else in their life and family and and their business and everything they were doing, and they have truly followed Jesus. And essentially saying, well, what's our reward? What do we get for doing this? And Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. And then he continues, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So again, he's telling them what's going to happen to them, to him. They don't get the picture, and he's helping them to see that they're missing the point. It's not about being the greatest in this world. You must be servant of all. You must make yourself last. You must serve others before you can really understand my kingdom and what it means to be great in my kingdom. And then in verse 32, we're almost to where we are today. It says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. So now this is the third instance in which Jesus has told them, here is what's going to happen. It's pretty plain and simple to us, right? But they don't get it. And so right after this, right after he tells them this again, this is when James and John approach Jesus and say, we want you to do something for us. It's pretty crazy, right? So what's with all the context? What's with the other passages? Because it helps us to see that Jesus is continuing to make the same point again and again and again. He's going to be delivered. He will die, rise three days later. And if you want to follow me, and if you want to be great, you got to put yourself last. You got to serve others. You must be a servant. So we can see that his disciples, including James and John, they continue to fail to understand that their Messiah isn't this warrior king they're expecting to deliver them from the Romans. Instead, he is a servant king. And so for us, we cannot truly understand gospel-centered service until we begin to look at the life of Jesus, and his death, and his resurrection, his entire reason for coming to earth at all. This is how we understand service. So for the disciples, and specifically James and John in this passage, they have a certain idea in their minds of the type of king that Jesus is, or at least what they believe he will be. And so how are they getting to this point, point? and what's their comparison as to what kind of king Jesus will be? Well, they're looking at the, the kings around them, right? They're looking at the Israel kings that they've seen throughout history. They're also comparing them to the Gentile kings that they see around him, specifically the Romans in this moment. So when they look at Jesus, that's why they see this warrior, savior, king, because that's what they look at whenever they see these Gentile kings around them. And so they think, and they rightly know, like, hey, you're going to have glory, right? You're going to have a kingdom, but they only see it as an earthly kingdom. And so James and John, they're like, we want to be number two and number three in your kingdom. That's what it means to be on the right hand and the left hand. That's what they're asking in this moment. They want to have a place of importance in the world in which they live. And so they're only focusing on their glory, not Christ's glory. Their hearts are only set on their own names and not his. But thankfully, in this moment, Jesus is really patient with his disciples just like, think, Jesus, he is patient with us. Even though they have struggled for the third time to understand what he's saying. So instead of like rebuking them or something like that, Jesus instead takes the moment to teach them and to walk with them. So he compares um, Gentile rulers in this moment to help them understand He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. So he's saying, you know how the the Romans are, you know how other kings are, right? They they rule with a mighty fist over their people. They lord it over them. And of course, this is very apparent for them in this time because the Romans have been over Israel since 63 BC and they would continue to rule over Israel until 313 AD. So it's very apparent to them what Gentile rulers were like. Because really, Israel had been ruled by Gentile nations for much of its history. So this is very apparent um, for these Jews and for the disciples. So Jesus contrasts this idea of these worldly kings with what it means to be great in his kingdom. He tells them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he is correcting their misinterpretation of who the Messiah is in their eyes. Instead, he's telling them that his purpose is to come and to serve, to die, and to give his life for the ransom of many. So that brings us to, I think, point number one. I'm going to try to do a better job this week of not forgetting to click the little button for you guys to see. So Jesus is the suffering servant. He, this is how we begin to understand what service looks like by looking at Jesus. He is the suffering servant. So if you were to look back at Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 2, it says, For he, Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we he esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Truly, you can read that entire passage and see and understand that Jesus is truly a servant, a suffering servant, because he came not to be served, but to serve. He came to die, not just die any death, but an excruciating death on the cross for you and for me. And he offered his life as a ransom for us. His blood was shed on the cross for our sins and for our shame. This is our suffering servant. This is our King Jesus. He is a suffering servant. And this is exactly what he is saying to James and to John and to the other um, disciples as well. So if you look back at verse 38, after they've asked him to place them in, in the seat of honor, he says, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? So the, this idea of cup and baptism, these are, these are symbols. And what Jesus is referring to when he says a cup and that he's going to drink, he's talking about his suffering. So if you were to look ahead at Mark thirty-four or 14, verse 34, Whenever Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says to the disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And so going on a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he cried out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So the cup that he is referring to, this cup that they are not able to drink from, is the cup of his suffering. And we can also see this idea of the cup, the symbol other places as well. If you look in Jeremiah or in Isaiah or in the book of Revelation, we read of the cup of the wrath of God. This overwhelming righteous wrath that no one can overcome. This is the cup that Jesus must drink from on the cross. He's drinking of the wrath of God for our sins. So James and John, they're not able to drink that same cup that he's going to drink. And they're not able to be baptized with his baptism. So the baptism he refers to is is death, his death. And so this is exactly what we celebrate when we celebrate baptism of new believers, right? It's a symbol. So baptism symbols and represents death, right? You're placed under the water. You can't breathe under there. It represents being dead, just like Jesus died, and yet you are raised up to walk in a new life, right? And that's what it represents, the resurrection of Jesus Christ as well. So the cup is the wrath that he must drink, and the baptism is his death that he must die. And so just as we celebrate baptism and newness of life, we celebrate Christ's baptism, his death, and his resurrection. So he's telling his disciples, telling James and John, you can't do what I'm about to do. Although, you know, in truth, in their own sense, he does say, you you will be baptized, but it's different, right? And so you can go, and if you look at the apostles, almost all of them died pretty terrible deaths. And even John, who didn't necessarily die a terrible death, he was boiled alive, and then he survived through that, and then he was placed on the island of Patmos to, to live the rest of his days by himself, where he writes the book of Revelation. So the apostles do, in one sense, follow him, right? But it's not so good, and it's not the same because his death and resurrection is for our sins. So our theology of service, our understanding of what gospel-centered looks like, comes from Jesus himself. He doesn't lord anything over us like Gentile rulers. Instead, we can read in Philippians a beautiful passage, Philippians 2, 6 through 8. It says, though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So you keep getting that same picture. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus is a servant because he sets everything aside, right? He sets equality and his glory with God in heaven aside, and he comes to earth as a man to live and to die and to rise again for us. He is our only understanding of gospel-centered service. But think about that for a minute. The creator of the universe, by him and all and through him are all things made. He humbled himself by dying on the cross for you and for me, for the creation. We are, we are nothing before him, right? We are only jars of clay formed in his hands. And yet, he was still willing to come and to die for you and for me. So our understanding of gospel-centered service. It comes from Jesus. Now, to, to set the record straight, you and I, we are, we are just as sinful and wrong in our thinking as James and John, right? I mean, let's not kid ourselves. If we were in that moment, we would probably do something similar. Um, we may think and look at them like, how audacious are they, right? How can they even think to ask something like this of Jesus? Do they not understand what's about to happen to them? Well, no, in the, in the moment, they didn't understand. So there is is danger for us as well when we look at service. So the danger is, number two, our hearts can be wrongly motivated in our service. Our hearts can be wrongly motivated in our service. So for some of us, we may serve because we want to put Jesus into our debts. So how many of us have ever bargained with God before, right? How many of us have ever thought, well, if I do this, if I... Read my Bible every day, if I say no to that sin, if I'm a good person, if I disciple somebody else, then surely God will do this one thing for me, right? We are using our service to put Jesus in our debts. We want Him to be our servant, our to do our bidding. Many of us approach our relationship with Jesus this way and our service this way. We want our Messiah to do our bidding, to do what we ask because we do the right things because we are obedient and serve him. Or maybe you're a little bit more subtle in your sin, perhaps, right? Instead, you, you look at service as more of like a social justice warrior, right? You see that post on Facebook, and you're going like to hit like and share it, because that helps everybody else to see that you should take your walk with Jesus seriously. Or maybe you, you want to serve in church or you want to disciple others so that everybody else will see that you are a good servant and you are a good Christian being obedient because you want everybody else to see that you're doing what's expected of you. You are a Christ follower. Sin can be oh so subtle. And even in our service, we can make it more about our own glory than about His glory. So the truth is that you and I, we we can do nothing for Jesus. Absolutely nothing, right? We can't do anything to make him love us anymore. We can't do anything to make him forgive us anymore than he already has. He's already pretty good on his own. He doesn't need us. He's not indebted to us or owe us anything. He gets along just fine. So number three, and this is the part that's a little messed up in your worship guide because I missed it, but there's grace and that's okay. So you can just fix it on your own, but it says, number three, we can neither serve Jesus nor others without Jesus serving us with his death and resurrection. You may have to fill that in. I'm sorry, there's not a blank, but it's going to be okay. So we can neither serve Jesus nor others without Jesus serving us with his death and resurrection. You see, it's only out of the truth of the gospel, the fact that Jesus is a suffering servant, that we are then able to step into gospel-centered service, that we're able to be obedient in Jesus as we serve him, as we serve others. It stems from the gospel. It doesn't precede the gospel. That's something we need to remember. Going through these last points quickly, but that's okay. So it's from an understanding of the gospel that we can see, if it'll work, that we serve because he served us. So what does service mean? What's the entire purpose of serving? So I think if you look at service and what God's understanding is, it's something that I would call like the big M mission of God. So God is working to reconcile the world to himself. He's been doing this since the fall, working to reconcile all people to Himself. And so we are drafted into the mission of God. And it's all for His glory, for His name. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.16 and following, it says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. My goodness, what, what a passage. God has reconciled us to himself, and then he has given us the message of re- reconciliation. Now, why in the world he does that? Who knows, right? Like, why would he entrust something so magnificent and amazing to people like you and to me? It's a mystery of God, and somehow he gets more glory through it. But that's the truth. That's exactly what he does. He reconciles us to himself, and then he gives you and me, he gives Christ's followers, his message of reconciliation. He gives us the gospel to give away to others. That is his mission, and ultimately that's what it means to serve others, is to through our actions, through our service, through our words, to eventually open our mouths and give away the gospel. That's the service of or the purpose of service and of God's mission in the world, is his goal is to reconcile the lost to himself. Because he loves us. And it's for his glory. And that's why we do anything at all. That's why we serve at all. So why do you serve in Camp Redstone? Because we have the message of reconciliation to give to kids. We do it for his glory. Why do we serve on the worship team? Because we have the message of reconciliation. We do it for his glory. Why do we set up? Why do we welcome people into church? Why do we step out into our communities and serve in local ministries? Why do we engage in discipleship? Why do we open our mouths when we make relationships with other people? It's for his glory because we've been given the message of reconciliation. To give it away. That's how we serve others. By God's grace, somehow, he gives us opportunities to open our mouths, like Jerry did this week, with the message of reconciliation and to give it away to others. For the glory of God. So this is why we're here. This is why we are called to serve and what gospel-centered service looks like. We serve because God loves us. He loved us enough to serve us by sending Jesus to die for us. We serve because of the gospel, because Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many, including you and me, and then he compels us to give away the gospel. So as Christ's followers, we've been given oh so much. One of my last times that I had an opportunity to preach at Redstone Johnson City, I preached from 2 Timothy chapter 1. Um, the, both books of Timothy are some of my favorites. And so I just want to read a section of this to you and to help you understand what it means here. So 2 Timothy 1, beginning in verse 8, Paul says to Timothy, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to his holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know who I, whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And so that day when I preach and today, What I understand to be this this good deposit that has been entrusted to us is the deposit of the gospel, the message of reconciliation and salvation. So you and I, if you are a Christ follower, we've been given this amazing treasure, this amazing deposit known as the gospel. It is the only way to be reconciled to, to God, the only way to gain salvation is through the gospel itself. And so to be entrusted with this treasure is not only to protect it, right, from false teaching and understanding that we see in the world, but we are given this deposit to also give it away to others as well. So the gospel, it urges us to give it away to others for the glory of God. It compels us to use our gifts and our words and our action to serve others so that we can give away the gospel. Now, this week, since it's just an overview of the, of the gospel, and an overview of this understanding of gospel-centered service, I don't want to give too much like actionable steps. I want to kind of sit back in this understanding. Because the next two sermons, they're going to focus a little bit more on what this looks like, practicality, both inside the church and outside the church, what service looks like. So today, the main thing I want you to understand is that our understanding of service, our theology of service, comes from Jesus himself. He is our example And the only way that we are ever able to serve others or to serve Him is because He has first served us, right? We have to get that right. We can't twist it any other way. We can't think, I'm going to do this for God or do this for others for any other reason than the fact that He has already done it for us. It's out of the gospel that we're able to step into service and to give away the gospel. And so as we kind of ponder and pray through these things, both today and, and throughout this week, I've got a few questions for you to consider, and I think these are in your, your worship God as well. So as an individual, why do you follow Jesus and why do you serve others? And why do you do it? Do you, as an individual, do you view where you live and where you work, as avenues to serve others and give away the gospel? because it's ultimately why they're there, right? That's why you live in the neighborhood that you are. That's why you work where you are. That's why you have the friends that you are. That's why your kids play soccer on the team that they are. It's all opportunities and avenues to serve and to ultimately give away the gospel. So as an individual, do you think of your life in this way? Do you orient your life for the kingdom, as Jerry says? As a family, if you, if you have a family, as a family, what can serving others in the church teach our children? Because really, Anytime that we can engage in service and use it as an opportunity to give away the gospel is a form of discipleship for our kids, right? They can see that you're served because you're serving Jesus, right? Because you're obeying him and you're doing it for the glory of God and because obeying him is more important than anything else and following him is more important than anything else. As a congregation, are we serving the body of Christ for the building up of his church? So are each of us, are we serving this body with the gifts and service that we have been given for the building up of this church? As a congregation, are we serving, or do we have opportunities to serve in our local community? And as a congregation, are we engaging in the big M mission of God within our homes, within our church, within our community, within our nation, and within our world? You see, this, this life, it's really, really short. And it's not our own, because we are purchased by the blood of the Lamb. And we have been given this ministry of reconciliation to give away to others through the gospel, so that they might too be reconciled to God. As Jerry mentioned earlier, we are sojourners in this world. Our true home, our true loyalty lie with God and his kingdom. But we also must understand that during this time that we're here, we are his ambassadors. He makes his appeal to others Through us. And so we are here on this earth. We are given the deposit of the gospel in order to give it away to others. Our life is short. Let's not not waste that. So that idea of not wasting our life, it was a message um, given by a famous pastor named John Piper, if you ever heard of him. Um, He preached on this about 20 years ago, give or take, um, at Passion Conference a long time ago. And so I want to read a really short example of his excerpt of this sermon, this idea of not wasting your life. He uses um, this famous illustration, his his seashell illustration. You may have heard it before. So John Piper, standing in front of thousands of college students, says, three weeks ago at our church, we got news that Ruby Eliasson and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Eliasson, over 80, single all her life, a nurse. Poured out her life for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards, a medical doctor in the Twin Cities, and in her retirement partnering up with Rudy, she was also pushing 80 and going from village to village in Cameroon. The brakes give way, over a cliff they go, they're dead instantly. And I asked my people, is this a tragedy? Two women, in their 80s almost, a whole life devoted to one idea, to Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick in the hardest places. And 20 years after most of their American counterparts had begun to throw away their lives on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, they fly into eternity with a death in a moment. Is this a tragedy, I asked. And later on, he continues with an excerpt from a Reader's Digest article during that time. And the article said, Bob and Penny took an early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. That's a tragedy, he told the crowd. So this message that he preached on that day, it's inspired countless people to devote their lives to Jesus, And to serving others, whether it's inside or outside of the church, they they decided to take their lives seriously. That message also inspired James McNeil, if you know him, with um, Redstone Church, Johnson City. It inspired him to start the well, a ministry that has reached thousands of college students over the years that Jeremiah and Adam both work for as well. So the question really is, are you serving Jesus? Is he truly the Lord of your life? And I want to leave you with with one final thought. And even though I've read lots of excerpts today, and that's kind of cheating when you're preaching, I want to read you one more excerpt from something else. It comes from a song by Casting Crowns called Start Right Here. It's pretty new. Um, So here are the lyrics, just part of it. I'm not going to read the whole thing. So the song goes, We want our coffee in the lobby. We watch our worship on a screen. we got a rock star preacher who won't wake us from our dreams. We want our blessings in our pockets, We keep our missions overseas. But for the hurting in our cities, would we even cross the street? We want to see the heart set free and the tyrants kneel. The walls fall down and our lands be healed. But church, if we want to see a change in the world out there, it's got to start right here. It's got to start right now. Lord, I'm starting right here. Lord, I'm starting right now. The next verse continues, I'm like the brother of the prodigal who turned his nose and puffed his chest. He didn't run off like his brother, but his soul was just as dead. What if the church on Sunday was the church on Monday too? What if we came down from our towers and walked a mile in someone's shoes? And it continues from there. So when we look at gospel-centered service, our only hope is to look at the life of Jesus. He is our example of service, and the example that he calls us to is one to pick up our cross and to come and die. He compels us to die every single day, to die to ourselves and our desires and our wants, and to follow him fully and completely. And he has given us his message of reconciliation, his gospel, not just for ourselves, not to just keep it for ourselves, but to give it away to others. And so I believe that God's mission to reconcile the world to himself, that he invites us into, that we use our service as opportunities to give that away. See, service, it's important. And our understanding of gospel-centered service comes from Jesus alone. So the question is, what are you going to do with what you've been given? So I'd like to take a moment and pray. The worship team's going to come up in just a second, but we're going to pray and just kind of allow it to sit and ruminate for a minute. And then we'll do what we normally do, and we'll open it up in case anybody has anything that God's kind of speaking to you in this moment that you want to share. And then we'll continue on in worship.